Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. We are in James chapter 4 today, James chapter 4, and I want to talk to you about how to live peacefully in the midst of conflict, how to live peacefully in the midst of conflict. I'm enjoying this series on James. James was the Lord's brother. He grew up around Jesus as a sibling of Jesus, but after the resurrection, he realized who Jesus really was and came to be not only a believer, but the leader of the Jerusalem church. Um, A story is told, you may have heard it, I would say most preachers have. It's one of those preacher's jokes, Brother Don. You heard about the man that was rescued after being on a deserted island. And uh, the ship that saw him, you know, sailed in. And as he's standing on the deck of the ship talking to the captain as they're leaving the stranded island, the captain says, sir, I thought you were stranded alone. How come I see three huts on the beach? And he says, all that's simple. Uh, That there, that hut's my house. And that one is where I go to church. And he says, where's the third hut? That's where I used to go to church. You'll get that in a minute, right? I know. But it illustrates a reality, doesn't it? The Adrian Rogers used to say it this way. Adrian Rogers said, anything that moves causes friction. Anything that moves causes friction. So, in other words, conflict is a reality of life. We don't like it. Nobody likes it. And, you know, if I wasn't preaching through a book of the Bible, I wouldn't want to preach on it. But when you preach through the Word, you preach whatever is next, and here we are. And so what I want to talk to you today is about what path of wisdom you are following. Last week, I want to connect this to last week. Last week, we finished James chapter 3, and we talked about two kinds of wisdom. I called it true wisdom and false wisdom. And I want you to think for a moment about which path of wisdom you're following and where that path leads, okay? For example, if you have false wisdom, according to James chapter 3, the last part of that chapter, it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic, it's full of envy and selfish ambition, and quite frankly, false wisdom leads to conflict. However, true wisdom comes from God, and it is pure and peace-loving and gentle and compliant, full of mercy and good fruit, unwavering, without pretense, everything in James 3.17. And true wisdom comes from God, and it leads to peace. Okay? Verse 18 of James 3, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. And so there's a difference between true and false wisdom. Now, when you examine uh, on a bigger scale, when you look at the New Testament, And when you look at the reality of conflict in the church, I'm ashamed to say it's everywhere. For instance, when you examine some of the early churches, you discover they had their share of disagreements. The the members of the church at Corinth, you know, we have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, two of the larger larger letters to churches in the New Testament. And uh, the members of the Corinthian church were competing with each other in public meetings, and they even sued each other in court. That's pretty bad. Um, The Galatian church, the believers at Galatia, they were biting and devouring one another. That's pretty bad. Um, Paul had to admonish and warn the Ephesians to cultivate uh, spiritual unity. And then, of course, one of the best uh, 
churches in the New Testament was Philippi. They had partnered with uh, uh, Paul in his ministry uh, from day one. And, uh, and yet, in his letter to the church at Philippi, there were two women that could not get along. And so, wherever you have people, you're going to have problems. Now, let's look, if you will, in James for a minute. I want to kind of get a, a big view before we zoom in to the text. In James 1.22, we're told that people can be hearers of the Word of God and not doers of the Word of God. In James 1.22, be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, people can come to church and check all the boxes. I read my Bible, I prayed, I came to church, I did everything I was supposed to do, and they walk out that door, and Monday through Saturday, they live a different kind of life. And then they come back and play church on Sunday. You can hear the Word... But that's not going to do you any good unless you put it into practice. You've got to be a doer of the Word. Uh, James also talked about uh, sometimes people can't control their tongue. In James 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Again, look at what James is saying in verse 22 and verse 26. You can come to church, you can hear the Word, you can play church, okay? You can say, all oh, that sermon was good for somebody else, but not for me, okay? And you can wag that tongue all you want, and guess what? If you're not doing the Word, and if you're spreading gossip instead of the gospel, guess what? You're deceiving yourself. That's what James says in 1.22 and 1.26. Then, of course, in James chapter 2, uh, James is t- writing to some believers, and another, another way you knew that they had conflict among their midst was favoritism. In James 2, verse 1, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. In, in the kingdom of God and in the church, we should never talk about one person over another. We should talk about Jesus. He's king. He's Lord. He's master. He's the hero. If anybody gets praise, it's Him. And then, of course... There's those that claim to live by faith, but their actions don't back it up. In James 2.14, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? And then in verse 20, senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Some people can say, well, I've been in the church all my life and I do this and I do this, but listen. Are you trusting God, and is He working in you and through you? You know, we can talk about faith all day long. We can talk about how we've been a member of a church all day long. But do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your trust and confidence placed in Him? That's the issue. And then, of course, there's a warning in James chapter 3 that not all people should become teachers. In James 3.1, not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we'll receive a stricter judgment. Sometimes people want to be leaders. Sometimes people want certain positions of power and influence. And, and if you want to be a teacher, that's great. I, I, think that's a, I think that's a worthwhile desire, but not everybody, according to James, should be a teacher. Why? Because you're going to have stricter judgment. You're going to have stricter judgment. Why do I say that? Because when you teach this word, you're under the authority of the word. Make sense? And so you're held to a stricter judgment. Then we get to chapter 4. 
And James rebukes some believers for being worldly. In James 4, 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. And so now you have people in the fellowship of believers that are acting worldly. They're acting worldly. And uh, James says, quite frankly, that if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. And then in James 4.11, it says, Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. And if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And so last of all, they criticized each other. So you put all this together and you see some insights from this short letter of five chapters that James wrote that he was dealing with people that were hearing the word of God, but they weren't putting it into practice. So they were deceived about their spirituality. They, they did not control their tongue. They said things they shouldn't, and they didn't think they were part of the problem. And so they were deceiving themselves. They were showing favoritism among the congregation. They were claiming to live by faith, but their lifestyle did not back it up. They were wanting to become a teacher when they shouldn't. They were being rebuked for being worldly, and they were criticizing each other. Well, alrighty then. And that's what James is dealing with. That is, the, that is the background of the situation that he's speaking to people that are in conflict. Now, the question is, why were these believers in conflict? I'm going to give you three quick reasons. Why were these believers in conflict? Uh, number one, they were fighting one another. Look, if you will, in James 4 verse 1. That's our text this morning. It says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Stop right there. A lot of questions in this text, rhetorical questions. What is the source of wars and fights among you? In other words, there was wars, there was fighting among the flock of God. And it, they were fighting one another. Uh, you go on down to verse 11 and 12, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters, anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer, defames and judges the law. And it says, who are you to judge your neighbor uh, there in uh, verse 12? So they were fighting with each other. They were criticizing one, uh, one another, and they were judging one another. And James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? That's one reason why there was conflict among the congregation. But there's a second reason why there was conflict among the congregation. They were frustrated with themselves. They were frustrated with themselves. Look at James 4, 1 again. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. They were not only fighting with one another, they were frustrated with themselves because they wanted things that God had not given them to have. You know, that's a sign of immaturity. Immaturity is wanting things you're not ready for. I mean, when your child is 12 years old, do you say, hey, I need the keys. I want to go down the street. They're not ready for that. Legally, they're not allowed to do that. Immaturity is wanting things you're not ready for. 
you and I need to understand that God has given us what he's given us. I'm reminded of a uh, passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul told the church in Corinth, he says, let no one boast in human leaders for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Man, what a short-sighted focus when we get caught up in stuff and forget that I'm a child of God. I'm a, I'm a co-heir with Christ Jesus. I'm going to be with him forever in glory. I'm going to enjoy the new heaven and the new earth, and everything is, is mine because it all belongs to him. Wow, that just, that just really expands the, um, the uh, concept, doesn't it? And he says, he says, my brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. In other words, don't go beyond the, the revealed will of God. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? Uh, or yeah, who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't? You know, everything we have comes from God. If anybody gets to praise and the glory, guess what? It's him. And so they were fighting with one another and they were frustrated with themselves. Here, it's about coveting. You know, coveting is wanting what other people have. That's what coveting is. Coveting is the 10th of the 10 commandments. Thou shalt not covet, okay? Um, If you break the 10th commandment, you automatically break the first commandment. Let me kind of draw a picture here. The tenth of the Ten Commandments, don't covet. The first of the Ten Commandments, that shall be no other gods before me. So when you covet, you want something that God didn't give you or allow you to have, and that becomes an idol. And you're putting that before God. And so coveting leads to breaking the first of the Ten Commandments. And once you do that, you'll break all of them. And so... He says here, you covet and you can't get. You fight and wage war and you do not have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. And so we have to realize that God is the one that gives us what he gives us. And we should be content with that and be grateful for that. Why were these believers in conflict? They were fighting one another. They were frustrated with themselves. And number three, they were faithless toward God. Look, if you will, in James 4, 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our God is a jealous God. The spirit that he has put inside of us is the Holy Spirit. And it grieves God when we sin. Matter of fact, in Ephesians, we're told not to uh, grieve the, uh, the Holy Spirit, which has sealed us into the day of redemption. Don't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You and I grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin against God. We, we, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin against one another. We, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we do those things. And these believers were in conflict because they had their eyes on the wrong thing. 
They were fighting each other. They were frustrated because they wasn't getting what they wanted. And they were faithless toward God because God was not even in the equation. He wasn't even a factor in the equation. With all that said, that is the the background that's going on here in James when we read chapter 4. And so my message now is this. How do we live peacefully in the midst of conflict? Because, see, conflicts like life, it will happen. It does happen, okay? And before you jump into that and say, well, maybe I can fix it, or maybe I can do this, or maybe I can do that. Maybe you need to back up and say, God, what do you want me to do? And how do you and I live peacefully in the midst of conflict? Number one, surrender to God and resist the devil. There in James 4, verse 6 and 7, he gives greater grace. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, because of that, submit to God... Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Whenever conflict happens, what do we think? Oh, man, the devil's got in here, right? He's got in here. He's stirring the pot. He's doing his thing. You know, God God wants to, to add and multiply. What does the devil want to do? He wants to subtract and divide. That's what I call math right there, okay? That's the kind of math I understand. Don't, don't give me equations, you know, with numbers and letters. I'll let somebody else deal with that. Don't like that kind of math. But I understand this kind of math. God adds and multiplies and Satan subtracts and divides. And so if we're going to submit to God, we've got to realize that there's motivation, there's incentive for us to do so. Because he says there in verse 6, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Have you ever wondered why Jesus did what he did? When you read the four Gospels, when you read about the earthly ministry of Jesus, why was he kind of hard on that rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Lord, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He wasn't easy on him. He looked at the man, and the Bible says he loved him, and he says, one thing you lack. Go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And what did that guy do? He walked away sad. I can see the disciples right now. I can see Judas in particular, the one that betrayed Jesus that had the money bag. I can see him saying, don't let him walk. He's a great giver, you know? And then you look at other people that Jesus had in his earthly ministry. I mean, think about the woman that was caught in adultery. And remember, it was a setup because the religious people caught her in the act and they bring her to Jesus and they say, the law of Moses says we should stone her. But what do you say? That is a setup. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words. If he, if he agrees with the law of Moses, people won't think he's compassionate as he, as he should be. And if he somehow lets this slide, he's not obeying the, the law that God gave to Moses. It, it, it looked like one of those no-win situations. And what is Jesus doing in the midst of this ordeal? He's got his finger and he's writing in the sand. Now here's the part we don't know. We don't know what he wrote. That's the one part the Bible doesn't disclose. We have no idea what Jesus was writing. But he was writing in the dirt. He was writing in the sand. I would love to know, wouldn't you? I can't help but think it's a couple of things. It's either he was writing the Ten Commandments or maybe the shorthand of it, like idolatry, 
blasphemy, adultery, lying, stealing. That's what I'd like to think. Why do I say that? Because he looked up from when he was writing and he said, whoever is without sin can throw the first stone. And all of a sudden you heard a lot of rocks drop. Everybody dropped their rocks and they walked away. And Jesus looks up and he says, lady, where are your accusers? And she says, they're not here. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Wow. Have you ever thought about why Jesus treated this rich young ruler who had a lot of money and you know, came to Jesus with a question, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Kind of gets a hard pass. Gets a hard word. Sell everything you got. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. And here is a woman that is caught in the act of adultery. Where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What's going on there? Can I tell you what's happening? If you want to understand Jesus' earthly ministry, if you look at the encounters he had with all the different people he met that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see him observing this rule in James 4, verse 6. God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. The rich young ruler comes and says, Lord, what good thing must I do to be saved? There's no one good but God, and you can never be good enough. So you know what? There's one thing you lack. Uh, I see you got a lot of money, and I think you love it more than God. So why don't you give all that away, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Jesus read his mail. Jesus knew his heart. He knew he loved his money more than he loved God. And that's why the guy walked away sad. God opposes the proud. And yet, here is the woman caught in adultery. She's being humiliated. And it's such a double standard. Why do I say that? Because the religious leaders caught her in the act of adultery. You don't do that by yourself. This is Sunday morning. I'm keeping it PG. But you understand that, right? You don't do that by yourself. Where was the guy? Didn't matter. They were trying to prove a point. They brought the woman. They didn't bring the man. Jesus saw through their charade. He saw how broken and humiliated this woman was being paraded out in front of everybody. She's an adulterer. She was broken. She was humble. And when they were ready to cast stones, he said, he that's without sin cast the first stone. And he kept on writing. And they went, yeah, I'm out. And when everybody leaves, where are your accusers? They're gone. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Oh, that's grace and mercy right there. You see Jesus and how he interacts with people. He opposes the proud. They're just not there yet. They think they got it all figured out. They think they know it all, and they're wrong. And he gives grace to the humble, to those who are broken, who, who, those that they know they're a mess. 
And that's the guideline that you see in Jesus' ministry. And that's what James is trying to call attention to here. And he says, look, when you've got fights among you, when you've got conflicts among you, the problem is not the problem. The problem is how you handle the problem. The problem is how you deal with the problem. And the first thing you got to do is each one of us have got to get alone with God and deal with us and God. God gives grace to the humble. And it's a choice that we have to make, each and every one of us. We can surrender to God. That's what I mean by submit. I mean, don't give me a word. I like the word submit, but I really like the word surrender. Hands up. God, you're in charge. Years ago, um, in uh, Tennessee, had a, a neighbor named Long John. He was a lawman. They called him Long John because he was a big, tall guy. He had been in law enforcement his whole life. He'd been a, a sheriff. He'd been a policeman. He'd been, um, he'd been the state trooper in Tennessee. And I remember when I got to visit him on his deathbed. And he looked at me and he says, Brother Corey, God's in charge. And I went, wow. Here's a man that spent his whole life living under authority. And when it was time for him to die, he was still living under authority. God's in charge. He's in control. You and I need to submit to God. And then we can resist the devil. And when we submit to God and resist the devil, the devil will flee from you. But it is a conscious choice that you and I and every single one of us has to make. Remember Cain? You know, Adam and Eve had two boys, Cain and Abel. And Cain killed his brother Abel. Look, if you will, in Genesis 4. I want to look at that story for a moment. It says in Genesis 4, 3, In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. There's the moment. In that moment, Cain had to make a decision. Am I going to do the right thing or the wrong thing? Am I going to submit to God and do what he says and resist the devil and he'll flee from me? Or am I going to do what I'm going to do? The very next verse, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. You and I have to make a conscious choice to surrender to God and submit to him, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Number two, how do we live peacefully in the midst of conflict? Choose to draw near to God by repenting of our sinful actions and attitudes. Look, if you will, in James 4, 8 and 9. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, the miserable, be miserable and mourn and weep, and the laughter turned to mourning and joy to gloom, that's a picture of repentance. In the Old Testament, when they repented, it was sackcloth and ashes. And they began to weep and mourn over their wicked ways. That's what's going on here in verse 9. It's repentance. And repentance is more than skin deep because there in verse uh, 8 it says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. It's our actions and it's our attitudes. If we're going to draw near to God, then we need to deal with that. One time someone was quoting uh, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen: if my people will humble themselves and pray. And he was going through it. And he forgot the part about repenting of your wicked ways. You know, we can humble ourselves and pray and seek his face. But unless we repent of our wicked ways, he will not hear. He will not heal. He will not forgive. There's, there, there's, no, there's no salvation without repentance. First church I ever pastored, Brother Vernon Turner was the founding pastor and he was a member of the church. Loved him. He was a dear man. He died of leukemia. One of his quotes that he used to tell me that stands out, he says, Corey, most people are as close to God as they want to be. Think about that. Most people are as close to God as they want to be. So how do you change that? James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. You want to get closer to God? Then take some steps to pursue Him. Take some steps to seek Him. And if you draw near to Him, guess what? He'll draw near to you. That's a promise, y'all. He says He will do that. How close to the Lord are you? Wednesday night, I was sharing a little bit from James because whenever you go through a book of the Bible like this, it's kind of like squeezing a sponge. You just get more and more drops of insight and you're like, man, this is so good. I want to share it. And um, we were talking, got a new series on Wednesday night that will start after the uh, Fall Fest this week. It'll be uh, the following week. But um, it's called Man in the Mirror. And you and I, when we, whenever we read the Word of God, whenever we hear the Word of God, like right now, it's what I call a mirror moment. It's a moment that, that God can use to show you something in His Word that if you hear it, believe it, and receive it, and apply it to your life, can make you more like Jesus. So my question to you is, what are you doing with the mirror moments in your life? Every time when you're alone and you read the, you read the Bible, you have a mirror moment. Every time you come to church and you're hearing the Word of God preached or taught, that's a mirror moment. What are you doing with your mirror moments? Because in James chapter 1, he compares the hearer of the Word of God to someone that looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he looked like, forgets what he saw. And it's so easy for us to do the same thing. Here in a few moments, we're going to sing, we're going to pray, we're going to walk out that door, we're going to go to lunch, or we're going to do something somewhere. And are you going to remember what God's saying? Are you going to, are you going to be 
aware enough to, to hear what God is trying to say through the Spirit and through the Scriptures. Take advantage of the mirror moments. Well, there's a third thing. How do we live peacefully in the midst of conflict? Well, we surrender to God and resist the devil, and that's something that every single person has to do. And then we got to choose to draw near to God by repenting of our sinful actions and attitudes. And then number three, humbly depend on the Lord. Humbly depend on the Lord. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. I think many times we just have to remind ourselves, Lord, you're God, and I'm not. Lord, you're in charge, as Long John would say. You and I have to humble ourselves and depend on him. The story is told about El Cristo de los Andes. And that's about all the Spanish you're ever going to hear me say, Devin. <laughs> uh, high up in the Andes Mountains is this enormous statue of Jesus Christ. It's known as the El Cristo de los Andes. And it sits on the border between Argentina and Chile. It was built to commemorate the resolution of a boundary issue that they had had for years that threatened their relationships as a people and as two nations. As long as the statue stands there, the nations have pledged that there will be peace between Argentina and China or Chile. And as Christ of the Andes stands 14,000 feet above sea level, you can't miss him. He's there for the whole land to see. He's got one hand holding a cross and the other hand held up as if providing a blessing. And every time they look up on that hill, they see Christ of the Andes. Well, as wonderful as this story is, the irony is shortly after they put the statue and erected it there as a symbol of mutual peace, controversy and bitterness broke out um, because the statue of Christ faced Argentina and its back was turned toward Chile. How did they miss that? The tension was thankfully diffused by a wise journalist from Chile when he said these words, the people of Argentina need more watching over than the people of Chile. And so it goes. The Christ of the Andes statue reminds us that Christ offers peace and that reconciliation to those who are at war with God and each other is possible if we'll all look to Jesus because he's watching over all of us. And that's where I want to end it today. You know, you and I, we need Jesus. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the head of the body. Many times we need to look at repentance two ways. There's vertical repentance and there's horizontal repentance. Vertical repentance is between you and God. If there's something in your heart that's not right between you and God, you need to practice vertical repentance. You need, to, you need to draw near to God and you need to repent of your actions and your attitudes and draw near to Him. And guess what? He, he gives grace to the humble. And if you draw near to Him, He'll draw near to you. 
But then there's horizontal repentance. The same God that says love God says you got to love your brother and you can't separate those two. That's why you have people today that they, they get out of church. They get hurt and they get out of church and they said, man, I love God. It's just people I can't understand. You may laugh, but I mean, I've heard people say that before, you know. And so horizontal repentance is when we go to that person and we repent of our actions and our attitudes and we get things right with our brother, our sister in Christ. Whatever God is calling you to do this morning, I want to encourage you to follow the path of God's wisdom. You know why? It leads to peace. Father, we come before you right now. Thank you for this time to praise you, to seek you, to worship you, and to hear from your word and your spirit. Father, I pray right now that your will would be done in our lives. Lord, have your will and your way in each and every heart. Lord, may we follow your wisdom and not the wisdom of this world. And Lord, may we experience experience the, the righteousness of God because we're living by faith and we're trusting you and we're doing what is right in your eyes. And Lord, we're experiencing your peace. Peace with you, peace with others and the peace of God that you give us in our hearts that nothing can take away. Lord, have your will and your way in this service today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.